Howdy how, this is Aswi and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Checking in from the suburbs near Philadelphia, which is not that sunny right now, I gotta be honest with you. It's AC, and with me, I got my guy from Washington, D.C., the swamp itself, Eric Fullwood. Yes, sir! It's a very enthusiastic yes, sir there, Eric. Today, is it because of this new season that we got going right now? Absolutely. Life is great. Got my Bulls doing well. Got my Wizards, my hometown team doing well. Life is great. No complaints. How many teams teams you got right now? (laughs) I feel like I've lost track. (laughs) I'm diversifying my my portfolio and I'm branching out. So I have a couple of teams right now. Lakers, Bulls, Wizards. I'm going to see which one does the best and then I'll narrow it down to that team. (laughs) Well... In maybe a bit of an odd development this year, it's actually the other two teams that you mentioned, the Bulls and the Wizards that are doing very well, and not the Lakers. Yeah, that's definitely quite the development. I did not predict this happening during our prediction podcast earlier this year, but life is full of surprises. So we'll get to those two teams because one of the things we want to talk about is just how much fun we're having watching this young NBA season so far. And the Bulls and the Wizards are definitely a big part of that. But apart from that, there's a big, broad change that happened in the NBA this offseason when the competition committee installed these new rules preventing a lot of, why don't we just call it the uh, manipulation of the rules? Uh, (laughs) James Harden, (laughs) Trae Young. (laughs) And uh, I feel like it has made a massive improvement in just the watchability and even just how long the games are taking. Like they're just quicker. Action is better. The flow is better. There's better balance between offense and defense. What have you even noticed so far, Eric? Shout out to our tax lawyers in chief, James Harden and Trey Young. I feel like we almost need like a proverbial rest in peace montage to them. And the stuff that they were allowed to get away with for the last few years. And now their careers suddenly has taken like a drastic change overnight. So that to me has stood out the most. So I think that's a great point, AC. Like they seem to be dramatically different players thus far at the early going of the season. Yeah, and just to put some numbers to what Eric mentioned there, James Harden is a career 8.7 free throw attempts per game kind of guy. And that's actually underselling some of his peak seasons where he was over 11 free throws attempted per game. So far this year, he's at 4.7 free throws attempted per game. And Trey Young, who many people call the catalyst for this entire rule change, he had 9.3 free throws attempted per game two seasons ago and 8.7 free throws attempted per game last season. This year, it's down to just 5.3 attempts per game, and it seems to really be stalling out Atlanta's offense so far. Yeah, definitely. Atlanta is being more adversely affected by Trey Young's early season like troubles, particularly getting to the line and, and concurrently his field goal percentage going down and him just not being as effective offensively. Luckily, because the Nets have this generational 
scorer and Kevin Durant, uh, the, the Brooklyn Nets aren't being affected by James Harden essentially turning into Chauncey Billups overnight. It's a bit of like a, a, a Cinderella story. Like James Harden was some ungodly amalgamation of Michael Jordan and Steve Nash at his best scoring in the, in the regular season the last couple of seasons. But now with the rule changes, he's just merely very good. Now, the Nets are able to coast on it, but it's definitely making them not quite the world beaters that I foresaw before the season actually started. Well, one of the reasons they've been able to stay afloat a bit is because Kevin Durant is playing at an absurd level. This man is shooting 71% from the mid-range. I mean, it's like video game numbers. And actually, one of the impacts of this rule change to me so far has been separating the scorers who can score no matter what the rules are, like Kevin Durant, like Steph Curry, who many people thought maybe benefited from sort of a quote-unquote softer NBA. He's showing that, hey, no matter what the rules are, he can still score, versus guys like Harden and Trey Young, who were exploiting the rules to their advantage and are struggling without those free trips to the free throw line or those multiple times a game where they get fouled taking a three-pointer and get three shots per game. This was already foreshadowed, though, AC, and I, I don't know how a lot of people didn't pick up on this. We always knew that the NBA called fouls differently in the regular season versus the playoffs. Now, right. take a guy like Kevin Durant or Steph Curry, when we got to the playoffs... Their statistical profile wasn't much different. There wasn't much variation. Of course, their, their field goal percentage will go down some because you face tougher defenses in the playoffs. But James Harden in particular, if you look at his splits historically in the playoffs versus the regular season, he becomes a different player. Now, he makes up for it in increasing the volume but his efficiency goes dramatically down. And a lot of that is because he was allowed to be the tax lawyer in chief during the regular season. And during the playoffs, they call fouls honest. So I'm really happy just for like the aesthetic consistency of the game that we're now having fouls called in the regular season, how they were called in the playoffs. And one of the side effects of what you're saying, Eric, is that in part because of these, these tax attorney, which I love that analogy as a fellow attorney, <laughs> because it's, it's finding loopholes. It's, it's a great analogy for what these guys were doing. When you take that away, you allow for a better balance between offense and defense. Just to give a very simple example of this, if you think about the way that teams would guard James Harden, or even Kevin Durant, who had mastered the rip-through and these other ways of, of sort of exploiting the rules, they would actually guard these guys with their hands behind their back, right? And then ever since Zaza Pachulia kind of took out Kawhi Leonard and they changed the rules on that, you had a situation where jump shooters were being protected to a ridiculous degree. And so defenders weren't contesting three-point shots. And then at the same time, when the three-point shooting in the league expanded to astronomical rates, teams weren't able to contest those threes. And so those guys were able to hit these threes, unsurprisingly, at a, at a, at a ridiculous rate. You know what's really down this season? Three-point shooting. Because guys can come into these shooters much more than they could before, which is forcing contested shots and also less three-pointers in general, which I think is a good thing. Three-point shooting is at 
34.7% at the moment league-wide. That's like the lowest percentage AC since LeBron James' rookie season. So wow. three-point wow. shooting. So it's down even, even not even just for the last few years. It's down for oh, almost no, like no, a no, 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 no. It's, it's at a two-decade low. So three-point shooting had been going relatively up every year for two decades. Uh, of course, you would have some seasons that were aberrations. You had a couple of seasons where like strike stuff happened. And, you know, the bubble happened where there was, like, a wild variance in three-point shooting. But other than that, it was consistently trickling up. It's gone that down now because, as you've pointed out, guys can now play perimeter shooters more honest. And they're not getting calls that would make these defensive players defend with trepidation. You know, when we were younger, Eric... Guys who got to the free throw line a lot, they did it by putting their head down and driving and then getting hit on the way. And I thought that over the last few years, the balance of when free throws were given had shifted way too much to jump shooting, which I think, to be honest with you, unless a jump shooter is actually hit on their hand, is not the kind of thing that should be rewarded. People should be rewarded for jumping into defenders or hooking their arms or flailing as they shoot. So because of this rule change, you're seeing again now the people who are still able to get to the line are those guys who are willing to slash, get by their guy, and absorb contact at the rim, which has really been bolstering some of the young players in the NBA, like John Morant, like Anthony Edwards, who are just so fast and their guys can't stay in front of them, and thus they're able to either get to the rim and finish or get to the line. So it's making the slasher game have a bit of a comeback as well, which I, I, I think was much needed after a time in which the league had trended far too much toward just teams attempting 40 plus threes per game. Great point, AC. And I think with the new rule changes, incentivizing a return to slashing has incentivized, of course, guys who are the most athletic, like using those gifts and seeing guys get to the room and dunking over people and jumping over people and jumping around people is one of the great selling points of the NBA because it's an above the rim league. And it's interesting, like to even look at it from a statistical profile, you're absolutely correct, AC. What had been happening for the last four decades, though free throws per game has gone down every decade since the 1980s, the three-point shooting has gone up so exorbitantly quicker than free throw shooting that has gone has gone down. You have gotten people getting ticky-tack fouls that they would have never gotten called four decades ago. So now, in the present day, we have teams on average per game shooting something like 35 three-pointers a game. We have them shooting now 19 free throws a game. In the 1980s, on average, teams were shooting something like five three-pointers a game while shooting 27 free throws per game. So... While the free throws have gone down in four decades, something like 50%, they've gone up in the past four decades as far as three-point shooting, inversely, something like five, 600%. It's a crazy stat once you look at it, how the game has disincentivized putting your head down and driving to get foul calls. Yeah, on top of that, Eric, aesthetically, free throw shooting is the most 
boring thing that happens in basketball, right? In a sport in which there's dunks and blocks and crossovers and beautiful passing, nothing is more boring in a flowing sport than to stop the whole game and for everyone to wait around for someone to take two free throws. So anything the NBA does to reduce free throws is welcome just from a viewership standpoint and also just from making the game more exciting, which should be the goal of the NBA. And I think that it's very interesting that it's one of the old school guys who were on the competition committee that really pushed for this change. Guys like Michael Jordan, apparently. Guys like Pat Riley. And I think they probably look at this league as it's going right now and see it trending maybe in the wrong direction. And so they were a huge part of the reason why we have the changes we have today. So I I commend both of them for that. I will bet the little money in my savings account that Michael Jordan, first and foremost, spearheaded this with Pat Riley for reasons like germane to only Michael Jordan and about his own records and his own legacy standing (laughs) in the league. I mean, you know what? I can't say that you're wrong. This is Michael Jordan we're talking about. But hey, man, if someone's going to come along one day and be considered a better scorer than Michael Jordan, and he does it by doing the stuff that James Harden was doing, I'm all for any sort of rule change that prevents that from happening, even if it was done out of selfishness from good old MJ. Oh, big facts. I, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's good for the health of the game. I just know Michael Jordan's intentions weren't out of some magnanimity for the game at all. <laughs> Speaking of Michael Jordan, why don't we focus on some of the most fun teams to watch in the NBA this season? And let's start with apparently your Chicago Bulls. They are now nine and four and third in the East. And I think they've been one of the best teams to watch night to night. They're like my number one league pass team. If I see they're on, I stop what I'm doing and I turn on the game. What did you see, Eric, out of the Bulls so far this season? I see a young, super athletic team with quite a few guys who could defend on the perimeter. And I think that has a lot to do with why they're doing well. In particular, this is a team with Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso, two former Lakers. I sigh. (laughs) Two former Lakers that are now on the Bulls, and they're doing fantastic defensively. So... This, again, is where the rule changes and having guys that can guard the perimeter now has incentivized having these good young teams with like roving athletic defenders. So I'm I'm really excited about this team. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned their defense, Eric. They're six in defensive rating, but they have three starters who are below average on defense in DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, and Zach Levine. And of course, their big defensive ace from last season, Patrick Williams, has been injured this year. So if you're trying to figure out how they're doing this, it's the two guys you mentioned that are the most responsible. Let's start with Alex Caruso. So one of the things with Caruso this season as opposed to last year or his last several years is that he's playing a career-high 27.5 minutes per game. He's off the bench, but he's basically playing starters minutes. And And you and I have talked for years, Eric, that we thought that he was really underutilized on the Lakers. I mean... I've been Caruso high since the beginning of 2019, so I've been very bullish on him. But big facts, AC, he's getting starters minutes. And we would always notice when he was with the Lakers getting like 14, 15 minutes a game, that those 14, 15 minutes a game were always the minutes where the Lakers would somehow like increase their league to a point that other teams couldn't get back in the game because he was always making the right play, whether it was like hustling, 
whether it was making the smart defensive play, whether it was just being a general energy guy on offense, anytime he's in the game, he's positively affecting your team's outcome. I mean, a couple of things about his defense specifically, he's actually leading the entire NBA in steals per game this season. And some of the advanced stats back up that he's not just a gambler. This guy is in the 98th percentile, according to B-Ball Index, in deflections per possession, 96% in loose ball recovery rate, and the 87th percentile in defensive miles traveled per possession. So this guy is flying all over the place. And by the way, for the second straight year in a row, he's shooting at least 40% from three. So he's not like a zero on that end. And, and I've always thought that he had this ability to be a bit of a connector. So he's not a high assist kind of guy, not a guy you want to run offense through. He can't run a pick and roll, but he's the kind of guy who connects one pass to another pass really well on offense and helps things flow well. And so you're seeing that value on both ends come through from a young player who is making this team even better than they could be otherwise. Also, AC, was so great about those two guys, Caruso and Ball, usually with very good defenders or excellent defenders, they're good or excellent off ball or they're good or excellent on ball. These two guys are very good on ball or off ball. So you mentioned how much ground defensively that Caruso covers. So whether that's making up for defensive mistakes of his own teammates or just like being able to follow whoever he's guarding on the perimeter, like almost as if he's following them as a shadow, he can do it on ball or off ball. It's the same thing with Lonzo. So the the Bulls were able to get two defensive gems with their pickups of those two guys this summer. And it's clear that it's having a like a huge effect on their team's outcome. Because a lot of these guys that they have we, of course, DeRozan's been great as an addition, but they had Levine and they had Vucevic by the trade deadline last year, and they were still pretty damn bad in the second half of the year. But adding these defensive stalwarts have definitely affected their team's trajectory. There's a really good point about the scheme versatility that Caruso or Lonzo gives you because they can play any style of defense. They can chase someone around a screen in you know lock and trail technique they can play someone on the ball they can switch they can trap and they have the speed to recover and, and just to give you some numbers on Lonzo Ball real quickly he has guarded consistently on the Bulls the most difficult opponent on a per game basis so let's say whoever that perimeter guy is whether it's a a, a small forward whether it's a guard whether it's a, like a point guard or a shooting guard it doesn't matter he's taking that assignment on and much like Caruso he's elite in loose ball recovery rate at the 89th percentile He's elite in steals per possession in the 96th percentile, and he's active hands because he's in the 81st percentile in per possession deflections. So you're talking about a guy who's combined with Caruso, just very active and flying around, and both of them have good size for guards as well. So they're not like those guys who play really good defense, but they're just undersized. For their respective positions, they're two big guards, and to have that in a, in a league in a, in a year in which Perimeter physicality is once again being encouraged is such a boon to the Chicago Bulls. Big facts. Now, Eric, what have you seen from the Bulls on the offensive end? Now, they are somehow six in offensive rating, which I think would surprise a lot of people who didn't watch the Chicago Bulls last year. But this is a team that flashes offensive dominance at times. And in my opinion, a team that's been running some pretty unique stuff offensively 
They haven't been afraid to use DeRozan as a power forward. Nick Vucevic's combination of ability to score in the post and also pop out to three-point line has created a lot of room. And Zach Levine has become really one of the best technicians offensively in terms of his scoring ability and scoring range. I mean, everything you said was pretty on point. I was worried about the acquisition of DeRozan because DeRozan had never shown that he could particularly space the floor that much. But it really hasn't been an issue because, as you pointed out, like Vucevic, he can shoot from outside. I I think he's a little down this year from his usual rate, but he still has that ability that teams have to play him on. Caruso is a 40% plus three-point shooter. Lonzo Ball has been trending up for years in his three-point shooting, where you have to at least take into account his floor spacing. And as you said, Zach Levine is one of the best NBA like scoring technicians. He actually also has developed a very good mid-range game that's very reminiscent in ways to DeMar DeRozan. So you have guys that can score on multiple platforms. So there has been more spacing than I thought they would have, and it's showing with their offensive rating. But yeah, I, I'm a little surprised myself. But even that being said, last year, they had moments where it was fairly easy for them to score. So it's it's not super surprising. I'm actually more surprised by their defense. Yeah, and you mentioned Zach Levine and his sort of technical ability. It's kind of amazing that a guy who was most famous as a dunker, right? I mean, this guy had one of the great dunk performances I've ever seen in, in a dunk competition, certainly in the NBA. And then he kind of became a three-point shooter you know, over the last few years. Last season, he scored a ton and was one of the leaders in the entire NBA in points per game. But now this season, he has a level of refinement I didn't see from him previously. He's not just dunk or three-pointer. He's got this mid-range game. He's got a good bit of off-ball movement at times as well. He doesn't just need the ball to be dominant, which is great because he's playing on a team with multiple guys who could create something for themselves. And so he actually does look like an A-tier offensive option now, which I didn't see from him. And you mentioned DeMar DeRozan, Eric. The thing with DeRozan is he has a lot of flaws. And I think people focus on those flaws with good reason, right? I mean, he he can't hit threes. He is a defensive liability. He has a ceiling of what he can do in terms of playoff basketball. But in the regular season, he's a guy who has been the number one option on teams that have won a lot of regular season games. And if you just let him cook with space, he will burn you. And he can do it repeatedly and night to night as well. So having those two guys as sort of your go-to options, along with Nick Vucevic, one of the best offensive centers in the league, means they're probably going to be able to maintain a top 10 offensive rating throughout the season, which, again, I think would maybe surprise some people before this season. I like how you just gave that kiss of death by saying that that DeMar DeRozan has been on a lot of teams that have had great regular season records. It's, <laughs> it's like the, truth, most, the most backhanded <laughs> compliment ever. But I don't even know if you were trying to be shady with that, but it definitely was shade. I, I really wasn't, to be honest with you, because I, I do think there is a talent to be able to yeah, at least generate good enough offense for your team to win over the course of an NBA season. Now, playoff basketball is different. Teams are going to scout you. They're going to have time to focus on your tendencies and make you beat them by doing the things that you're weakest in. In, in DeRozan's case, is usually perimeter shooting. But in a regular season, you can get away with 
having DeRozan be the guy that you run your offense through for long stretches, even when he's the first option. I don't even know if he's the second option right now. Um, He's certainly not the first. That's definitely Zach Levine. So it's awesome to have him. I'll also say that playing him of the power forward is a good way for them to sort of reduce some of the problems they've that you would have with sort of a non-shooting two or three like he's had throughout his career. Here, you know, as a four, especially when Vucevic was at the perimeter, as, as you mentioned, Eric, he can kind of have space to operate in the mid post and, and then as more of a slasher and a mid-range artist as opposed to a spacer. So they're doing a good job of maximizing his strengths and minimizing his weaknesses. Yeah, he's averaging like 25 points per game, which is making him look like the Raptors version of himself. So they're definitely maximizing him to his best abilities and putting him on spots on the court where he's most efficient. So yeah, playing him at the four was definitely smart by Billy Donovan. Eric, why don't we swing to the other coast, to the team that has the best record in the league at the moment, and that's the Golden State Warriors. Now, they're coming off a year in which I think there were expectations for them, but they ended up in the play-in game. They lost to the Lakers. It didn't quite fire. They had this weird mix of young players trying to find themselves, and then Steph and Draymond as these veterans who were accustomed to winning. It didn't quite work last year. It feels to me that in the offseason, they struck the right balance in continuing to develop their youth, but also bringing in players like Bielitsa, who have been around the NBA and fit their system, while also getting rid of guys like Kelly Oubre, whose style of play just doesn't mesh with the free-flowing passing kind of offense that we've been accustomed to watching the Warriors over the last decade or so. Shout out to Kelly Oubre doing stupid shit on like his fourth straight team in like four years. But the Warriors just have a wealth of riches at all times. And I'm getting sick and tired of it. Because not only were... (laughs) Not only were they a dynasty that just like were inevitable and were soul crushing. Now somehow, without having Clay Thompson back as of yet, they're the best team in the league. Like, come on, man. Uh, when will we ever get a reprieve from this team? Like, when? Like, they they have a bunch of young guys now, and and some of them kind of like came out of no- nowhere like Jordan Poole. And and somehow they're now just this elite team that looks like a world beater without the second best shooter in the world playing for them and, and still sidelined. And somehow making Andrew Wiggins a reclamation project look like an elite 3 and D guy. I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm tired, AC. I don't know what to tell you, Eric. Good thing that you have three teams to root for. So maybe one of them will be able to beat these Warriors eventually. So I wouldn't be too upset because you have three times the chances of one of your teams beating these guys. At this rate, I think I might have to add a fourth or a fifth. Maybe I need to add the Nets to that list as well. Just go all in on on being a front runner. That would be be low even for you, Eric. That would be low even for you. In the mud, baby. (laughs) So let's get some numbers on this Warriors team that's been so dominant. They're third in the NBA in offensive rating, first in the NBA in defensive rating. They have the best net rating in the league. And I mentioned they're third in offensive rating, but it undercuts just how dynamic they could be because they have the best effective field goal percentage in the league and the best true shooting percentage in the league. So when they take a shot or basically every play, they have the best chance of scoring. 
And they're passing the ball almost like the pre-KD Warriors teams of old because they're first in the whole league in assist percentage. Okay, like when you actually give the numbers, it makes me even sadder and even more resigned to a potential future of them winning again. And now I just want to sit in a corner and cry somewhere. (laughs) So, Eric, you mentioned Andrew Wiggins, by the way, you know, as a bit of a reclamation project for them. This is a guy who really was considered a failure in the league. I know he put numbers up, so you couldn't quite call him a bust. But, you know, he came into this league with expectations that were sky high. He never lived up to them. Well, they've turned this guy into a defender that he always projected that he could be given his athletic gifts, but they never actually was. So just to give you some numbers on him per B-ball index, he's the 97th percent in matchup difficulty. So there's very few people in the NBA who are guarding better opponents. And he's been very versatile defensively with a 94th percentile defensive versatility rating. So he's swinging from guarding point guards to power forwards, whoever the other team's best player is, at least until Clay Thompson comes back. And maybe even after Thompson comes back, Wiggins is taking those assignments on. Yeah, and his three-point shooting, though down this year, it was good enough last year and it's still like hovering around a good enough point that you still have to like play him honest when he like leaks out behind a three-point line, which again gives the Warriors just an, another weapon. So yeah, they're they're really like a phenomenal team, which AC, the, the connection you made between this team stylistically and the pre-Kevin Durant Warriors, I think is spot on. And what's really interesting about this is that they're so good right now. And I don't even think Steph Curry has quite hit his efficiency, like ceiling that he could have. Like his his volume stats are up. He's scoring like 29 points per game. But he's shooting a little low from the field, and his three-point shooting isn't even what we know it can be. If he gets on a run, this team is going to be damn near unbeatable at this point. I totally agree about Steph's efficiency, Eric. I think it's interesting that he's been allowed to shoot more this season than he ever has before. He's averaging a career-high 13 three-point attempts per game. And you might think, well, of course, that's you know affecting his efficiency. But this is Steph Curry we're talking about. He absolutely is capable of hitting over 40% from three on that kind of volume. So if anything, I think it's just encouraging for Warriors fans that Steph Curry has built but empowered to and is totally taking the bull by the horns and saying, you know what, I'm just going to shoot. I am option one, two, and three on this team right now. And it's really been fun to watch. And the thing with Steph that I always appreciated is this dude plays this game with so much joy. Like, you can't help but watch a Warriors game and just see the way that he shares the ball and the way that he leads that team and kind of gives belief to his guys and also just his ability to score on on ridiculous levels. Like, I saw that game when he had 50 points and 10 assists. The way that he would attempt shots, like the platform he's shooting from, angles he's taking on his jumpers, it's like a busted video game. It's a glitch. He's a glitch in the Matrix, and there ain't no cure for it. Last thing I want to add about stuff. That's so phenomenal watching him play. He has this level of athletic arrogance and confidence. (laughs) That's like so joyful to see. I don't know if you saw the other night against the Hornets. He takes a shot. He takes a three-pointer on the wing. And 
as the ball gets out of his hand, he immediately turns to the fans and points. The ball's still in the air, and it just swishes in. And and he runs back to the other side of the court like, of course this was going in. Like, moments like that from stuff, they're so iconic. And those are some of the things that when he's retired, I'll remember, like, that guy was a badass. Not only was he a great player, but he was a badass. It reminds me a lot, Eric, of the way we look at Larry Bird clips now, right? When he would, in a three-point contest, take the three and then, like, already have to be celebrating before it even go in, knowing it was going to go in. Or telling someone, I'm going to drop whatever amount on you and then actually doing it. That type of self-confidence and the willingness to do that, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a kind of thing that kind of lives beyond the game, lives beyond the, the year that that's happening in. It kind of becomes a stuff of legend sooner rather than later. No doubt. But we're not going to talk about the Warriors anymore because I'm, I'm dealing with my sadness already. <laughs> No, no, no. We got to talk about one last guy before we move on. One last guy that deserves some a shout out on this he, team. I'm he, sorry, he, Eric. He's going to, he's going to knife, the man's going to knife me even more. Okay. Who is, who is it, AC? I, we got to talk about Draymond Green, man. I mean, this guy, I thought last year he looked like a guy who knew that his team sucked and played like it, to be honest with you. I would argue that was the case the last two seasons. And there were certainly rumors going around, you know, it's just, just talk amongst NBA circles, and maybe Draymond was a bit past his peak. Well, guess what? Draymond is showing the whole world that he's still that dude. This guy has been so phenomenal defensively. If we're going to say that the, the Warriors, and they are statistically the number one defense in the NBA, it's not Andrew Wiggins as good as he's been, or, or the many other younger bodies who are playing good defense for them that deserve the most credit. It's Draymond fucking Green. This guy is in the 94th percentile in block rates on contests. So he's basically just stuffing people whenever he does contest, despite not being that big. He's cleaning up the defensive glass. If you look at per-possession rebounds, he's amongst the league leaders. And then, of course, as usual, he's in the 80th percent in per-possession steals and also in contesting three-pointers. So imagine a guy who's both protecting the rim and still making it out and contesting three-pointers. That's Draymond Green. He's also diving on the floor. He's 84th percentile in loose ball recovery rate. So all the advanced stats shout out. Here is an early season defensive player of the year candidate. And also I should mention on the offensive end, a guy who is a big part of the reason that their ball movement and that, that number one assist percentage stat, a lot of it is due to his vision and willingness to pass the ball. Well, since we must, Draymond has been incredible on that end. I think some of the comments about, or observations rather, about Draymond looking as if he was a little long in the tooth the last two seasons, they seem to be a little true. It seemed he he came back this season in a little better shape than the previous two seasons as the season started. And his defensive intensity on that end to start the season has been a lot better than it was the previous two seasons to start. So I, I do think there's something to that, AC. I don't think people were just making that criticism in a vacuum and it, it had no real world weight to it. He looked like a different guy. He looks much more engaged. I will even say he looks a little better offensively though. And I think that has a lot to do with just having a bunch of good pieces around you. So yeah, Draymond's been very good. Steph's been very good. I, 
I don't have anything bad to say about them, even though I wish I did. Okay, fine then, Eric. If you really can't acknowledge that the Warriors are the best team in the league right now, why don't we move to your other newly adopted team, your hometown team, best record in the East as of the time we're recording this episode, Washington fucking Wizards. Bradley, Bill, Kyle Kuzma, other guys on the team. <laughs> no, the, the the team the team is really good. The team is really good because the Lakers gave them a wealth of talent to be good, and they're bro, reaping they gave those them, benefits. Bro, they gave them a team. <laughs> like they gave, like, they traded a team for a person. So it's not that surprising, I guess, if you look at it like that. A damn squad. But you know what, AC? One of the early returns on watching the Wizards games that I've taken back from it is that Montrez Harrell, in the right situation, is such a good player. He just has to be in the right situation to show it. And so far early this season, he's like a 20-9 guy. Like, great production, very efficient. He's been very good. And on the Lakers, he was at times utilized, sometimes used sparsely. We saw in the playoffs because of matchup issues, they stopped playing him as much. And, you know, his his time leaving the team a couple of months before, it, it was kind of like tense. But he looks really good on the Wizards. Kuzma, whose efficiency hasn't quite caught up, has been... A good pickup defensively, at least. So, yeah, the the Wizards are a a very surprising team for their record. They're number one in the Eastern Conference at 9-3 and right now. But like you said, AC, they got a whole team for Russell Westbrook, a person who thus far hasn't fit with the Lakers. It's a good point you made there about Montrezl Harrell, Eric. He is one of those guys that I really feel like you know, you have to game plan against him and you got to bring it against him. If you don't do that, he's going to get offensive rebounds. He's going to dunk in your face and scream at you. And then that way, he's like the perfect guy for regular season basketball, right? Because teams don't have the time to really emphasize, you know, cutting off Montrez Harrell on the offensive glass or worrying about the ways that he can score. And if he's with offensive talent and space around him, he can really kill people one-on-one around the hoop. Last year on the Lakers, he was often in the game with another big man or sometimes another big man and another non-shooter as well. So the the plate was more clogged and then his limitations as a player came to bear more. And then in playoff basketball, I think that he can be targeted because he's just not a good defensive player at all, especially outside of, you know, very particular schemes. Like he can move well, but he can't protect the rim and he's undersized. So it remains to be seen how useful he'll be in the playoffs. But you're absolutely right about Harrell in the regular season. He's given them another option alongside Bradley Beal that if you don't pay attention, will absolutely eat you alive on a given regular season night. And AC, I don't want to put too much stock into this stat because I understand its limitations. But right now, Montrez Harrell has a 28 PR, which is number five in the league. I mean, that's incredible, right? That's like, that means you're one of the best players in the NBA. Usually, if you're up that high. And it might not last, but it yeah, says something. Absolutely. It says one something. The, it, at least that he's very good thus far. Yeah, one of the things that I always appreciated about Harold is that he's actually an incredible finisher, but not in the ways that 
the average fan might think. Like, he's not a guy who's just getting and dunking every time. In fact, though he can absolutely dunk, he's not like an amazing athlete who can just catch every lob around him. He's not like, for a comparison of a guy who replaced him, someone like DeAndre Jordan, who can basically dunk just about anything in the vicinity of him that's thrown up in the air. But Harrell has a, a variety of other things he can do. He's really good at using the glass, shifting his body around. He can use both hands around the hoop. He is a fantastic finisher in general. And I think that shows, especially when he has space around him like he does on this Wizards team. You know who he's always remind me of, AC? And this is a guy who had a very few years of kind of peak performance, but he was an energy guy, much like Montrez. Kenneth Fareed. You knew exactly who I was talking about. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Always reminded me of Kenneth Fareed. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally see the Fareed comparison. Eric, you mentioned Kyle Kuzma as maybe not quite being there from an efficiency standpoint, but he is hitting nearly 39% from three and he's scoring 15 points per game and nine rebounds per game. And I want to focus on that rebound number for a second. One of the things about Kyle Kuzma I've always felt was that he was a really good rebounder. And he's one of the reasons that some of those lineups with 80 at the five over the last two years, I should say, really worked out because he could make up the difference on the glass. So let's say someone was pulling AD out, he could still make those rebounds necessary in traffic to prevent teams from kind of pulverizing the Lakers. And you see that happens on the Lakers this year, not having him. He's also developed over the course of his career into a very, very solid defender, like a guy that you can rely upon to throw on a big wing and to, to hold his own. So I think he's well-deserving of a starter role and probably should have had one in L.A., in my opinion. I've always said this. I think he should have been a star for the Lakers. If AD and LeBron were willing to play their actual best positions, Kyle would have thrived next to them. So the only issue with Kyle Kuzma this year, and everything you said about him has been correct. He's been a very good rebounder. He's been spacing the floor. He plays good defense. The only issue is, from an efficiency standpoint, He's shooting below the Mendoza line <laughs> yep. from, from free Eric, throws. For those who don't know baseball references that much, because you know we have a lot of international audience from countries that may not even play baseball, what exactly is the Mendoza line? So the Mendoza line is in baseball is a guy who has a certain batting average below a certain point. And at, at times, it's changed. So it used to be something like if you bat it, less than 200% or less than 20% to make it easier uh, from, you know, your batting average. That would be the Mendoza line. And and then they started using it for like a replacement level player. So in, in baseball, of course, a replacement level player would be a guy who, if he plays every every game for a certain number of minutes per game, he will give a certain amount of output. And you will, you will look at guys as being a replacement level guy and you would say are you above the replacement level guy or below the replacement level guy and right now Kyle Kuzma with his free throw percentage he's shooting below a percentage which I would call the Mendoza line of free throw percentages he's shooting below 50 percent which if he were to do that for a full season he would be like one of the worst free throw shooters historically and right now, that's what he's shooting, 48%. Yeah, I, I think your definition of Mendoza line is, is a little bit more generous if you're using replacement level player. 
I've always considered Mendoza line to mean the absolute minimum that a player could be doing, anything below which he's just like, you should replace him. So, but you're right. If you're shooting below 50%, that is below even that version of a Mendoza line. In other words, it's below the standard expected of a starter. The interesting thing with Kyle Kuzma, Eric, is he's probably benefited a little bit here in some of the early season absences of guys like Denny Avdia from here and there, and also Rui Hachimura trying to find his game again. When all those guys are back and sort of really performing at their best, Kuzma might find himself in a bit of a struggle for minutes. And I'm curious who you think would probably be the guy you would predict to win that battle at the sort of the starting four or even three slash four going forward for this team. So long term, I think Kuz will win out for that position, but I think Rui is going to give him give him a run for his money, and I can definitely see a situation where Rui wins. I think Rui has been a little more efficient, or I'm talking about in the past, Rui has been a little more efficient, particularly last year. Whereas Kuz plays better defense, and it it depends on what you prioritize. I think considering the Wizards have gotten out hot with the lineups they have, I, I think you would still put the weight on Cal, like improving his efficiency and the team getting better and somehow gaining some type of consistency of lineups. So I, I suspect he'll still be starting. That's a good point, Eric. I, I could totally see that going that way. Like why, why mess up a good thing, right? I mean, When's the last time the Wizards have been at the top of the East 12 games in? And it's kind of crazy to change that, even if Kuzma has a few holes here and there. I would actually argue that he's a big reason they even have the record they have. Because although this Wizards team is only 17th in offensive rating, they're fourth in defensive rating. And that's not with personnel you would immediately jump to to think of a team that has a positive defense. Like you look at guys like Bradley Beal, He's an all right defender, but he's certainly not above average. Marcus Harrell is a terrible defender. So it's the strength of the other guys around them that's really been doing the job for them. And one of those guys has been Kyle Kuzma. But I want to focus on the other guy that came from the Lakers that's making the biggest difference. We talked about Harrell. We talked about Kyle Kuzma. I would argue their biggest addition in the offseason has been none other than Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. What have you seen from KCP this year so far, Eric? The usual great defense. The great but underrated defense that you just don't notice on a stat sheet. His stats, his counting stats, they don't stand out at all. But in pretty like big minutes, they're playing KCP something like 30 minutes a game. Which, again, for the last few years before he was traded, he was a hell of a defender. Same thing, different team. Yeah, KCP to me is... Maybe the premier lock and trail guy in the NBA, or certainly one of them. And what I mean by that is he's one of the best at the technique of chasing shooters off ball through multiple screens and giving basically the minimum amount of separation between himself and the guy who's cutting to get an open shot as possible. And he's just been good at that for so long that you almost don't have to even think about him doing that job. He just does it perfectly. But this year, he's even taking a lot more man responsibility than I've ever seen him have before. According to B-Ball Index, he's in the 99th percentile in the difficulty of the opponents that he's guarded on a night-to-night basis. So basically, he's taking the most difficult opponent every single night, regardless of position. He's also, by the way, guarded Tier 1 or Superstar caliber players better in one-on-one matchups 
than 99% of his peers. So not only is he guarding the best players more frequently, he's guarding them better than just about anybody else. So all of a sudden, he's gone from this guy who was great off the ball and could play on the ball against certain guys to being an elite on-the-ball guy too, at least in this early season sample. And by the way, as usual, he gives incredible effort and energy throughout, which is why he's in the 93rd percentile in loose ball recovery rate and in the 92nd percentile in per-possession steal rate. Man, as a LeBron fan, this podcast has been an exercise in just... <laughs> just sad. I mean, I don't know the words to help for other than depression and sadness. Like all of these guys who are thriving in a league that just incentivize defense. And here we are. I mean, yeah, we've talked about four different guys who were on the Lakers team last year as being major contributors to some of the most exciting and fun teams to watch this season. And by the way, that's not even counting Lonzo Ball, the fifth guy who was also a teammate of LeBron James, who also eventually moved on, or at least they moved on from him. Because the other thing in common with all these players are, none of them chose to leave the Lakers. The Lakers chose to get rid of them. Shit, Caruso said he was going to take less money to come back, and the Lakers said, nope, (laughs) bye-bye. That's true, Eric. I don't know what the hell the Lakers were doing, but guess what? I got some good news for you. What's that? We will be covering your Los Angeles Lakers next time on the most disappointing teams podcast that we're going to do. So buckle up, study some tape of DeAndre Jordan flubbing multiple rotations in a row and get prepared for that pod. We'll cover the Lakers and other teams. Until then, for both Eric and myself, we'll catch you next time. Hope you have a good time and we'll see you for the next episode of Brown Men won't jump. Yay. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that one.